You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Today on the show, I am joined by Dr. Daniel Z. Lieberman. Dr. Lieberman is a medical doctor, psychiatrist, and clinical professor of psychiatry at George Washington University. Dan has published over 50 peer-reviewed articles and was the best-selling author of The Molecule of Mole, which has been translated into more than 20 languages. That was a book all about dopamine that I was personally recommended on the show by Dr. Andrew Huberman when he came on. Dr. Lieberman's latest book is called Spellbound, Modern Science, Ancient Magic, and the hidden potential of the unconscious mind. In this episode today, we discuss what is the unconscious mind? Why are we so drawn to magic and myth? Why elite performing athletes are the most superstitious people on the planet? What are the dangers of not exploring your unconscious mind? How to explore your unconscious mind? And then we chat about dopamine, how reward without effort can ruin a person, how to reset your brain for enhanced creativity, love, passion, and much more. I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Daniel Z. Lieberman. What is an unconscious mind? You know, we go through life thinking that we are all alone in our mind. And we think that we're in control of what happens in our mind, in our brain. And in fact, nothing could be farther from the truth. The part of our brain that we are unaware of, the circuits that are sort of acting autonomously without our understanding, they actually determine the vast majority of what goes on inside our head. And that's called the unconscious mind. And I wrote this book so that people get a better understanding of what's going on in their brain and how they can better manage those unconscious circuits. I love that. And when I was going through the book, I have to give you credit because you've weaned uh, expertise from psychology, from neuroscience, from mysticism, from spirituality, philosophy. Uh, what really was it that, that motivated you to, to kind of weave all this together? You know, for many, many years, even before I went to medical school, I was interested in the thoughts of Carl Jung. And really, he's the guy who does that. When I was, when I was in college, I studied what are called the great books of Western civilization. Starts out with Homer, looks at the ancient Greek philosophers, Plato and Aristotle, and really works up to modern times um, with Einstein and Newton and Lobachevsky and all of those people. And one of the things that we realize as we read all of these great writers and philosophers is that all knowledge is one. Mm -hmm. And there are far more connections between these different disciplines than we imagine. 
in our modern world, there is so much incentive to become a specialist, to live inside a silo, to get to know less and less with more and more detail. And, and, and that's beneficial. That that kind of expertise has allowed us to have incredible progress in the sciences and other fields, but we lose something by that. And so one of the things that Spellbound does is it looks at the human mind as the source of all of these different disciplines and pulls it all together and says, what does this tell us about the deepest aspects of human psyche? And I completely agree. I think that, you know, people can get so caught up in p-values and and you know uh, behavioral measures that is lost the importance as you talk about in this book of the unconscious of uh you know these these hidden myths and different traditions that we can all weave together i'd love to know because obviously as you said that you're a you're a a, a psychiatrist you're a highly um extremely well regarded i was looking through your cvs you know fantastic your previous book, The Molecule of More, very, very scientific book, you know, pretty easy to quantify. This one, were you nervous at all about writing about, you know, for instance, the unconscious mind, magic, myth? Were you, did you have any trepidation in doing so? I did. I did. You know, I've been reading Jung for more than 20 years. And I would say it's just in the past few years that I've really gotten a good enough understanding of him that would allow me to explain it to other people. One of the challenges is sometimes it feels like you can't understand any of it until you understand all of it. And so the hardest part was getting in. Uh, how do I get into this topic and start people off? And I decided to get in with science. And so the beginning of the book is really a lot more about neuroscience, p-values, and empirical experiments. And it's the philosophy of vegetables before dessert. It's tough. It's tough. And I encourage readers to really work through this because it lays a foundation for the next part of the book, which is fun and exciting. That's the part that goes into the ancient magical traditions. So one of the things that I was really interested when I was kind of exploring the unconscious mind in your work is it got me thinking kind of if the opposite of it is this kind of conscious mind, all the things that we're kind of thinking about, you know, that we can make these conscious, we can make these rational decisions. What kind of things are in this, you know, unconscious mind? What, what are some predictors of things that are, you know, buried deep within that perhaps go back to our childhood? past relationships, all these things that we're not kind of consciously thinking about. What what contributes something to go into the unconscious? Yeah. So Jung divides up the unconscious into two distinct parts, the personal unconscious and the collective unconscious. Let's start with the personal unconscious. The personal unconscious consists of things that were conscious at one point and left the conscious mind typically for one of two reasons. One is we just forget about it. And so that's all the stuff from childhood. And I think that we've all had the experience of having that stuff erupt into consciousness, just kind of out of the blue. And it can be a very meaningful, intense experience. One of the classic things that causes that eruption are smells and tastes from childhood. 
Have you ever been in a place, I, I don't know, maybe it's your old school, maybe it's an old home, you get this smell and boom, you are transported back there. And, right. and, and it is kind of a magical experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. The other thing that's in the personal unconscious are things about ourselves that we find unacceptable. Mm. And so we suppress them. We push them out of consciousness down into the unconscious mind. And that consists of the very worst of who we are. Jung calls that the shadow. And it may sound nice to, to put that in a closet and not have to worry about it, but it's actually not a good thing to have it there. Because what happens is just as childhood memories can erupt in very, very intense ways, aspects of the shadow can also erupt in intense ways. And um, when that happens, we act in uncharacteristic ways. We can be thrown into a rage. We can be overcome with, with very negative passions. And we speak of it in magical terms sometimes. It's embedded in our language. People will do something very stupid, very uncharacteristic, and they will say, I don't know what possessed me to do that. This, this unconscious shadow can sometimes possess us the way supernatural creatures can. We, somebody might do something incredibly stupid. They make a decision that destroys their career, and we say, oh my gosh, I don't know what got into that person. Right. Uh, again, this, this, this metaphor of something taking over a person temporarily. That's the personal unconscious. Now, the collective unconscious, in my opinion, is even more interesting and essentially, it represents instinct, human instinct. Just as all human beings share physiological structures in common, we all have two eyes, two arms, one nose, one heart, two lungs, etc. The brain, uh, which, which gives rise to the psyche, also has this bedrock that all humanity has in common. And I think the best way to think about it is with instinct. Now, Sometimes we think about instinct as being very primitive, hunger, sexual desire, aggression, etc. But that's not accurate. Instinct can actually be extremely sophisticated and extremely complex. And we can see this in the instinct of other animals. You look at the instinct of bees, for example. They form this incredibly complex colony and they don't learn how to do this. It's just encoded in their DNA. Uh, you look at the weaver bird weaving this incredibly complex nest. They don't learn that encoded in the DNA. Now, the human brain is far more complex than any other brain on this earth. And so it's reasonable to expect that our instincts would be even more complex than anything we see in the animal kingdom. And that is what we see. And what Jung called these instincts were archetypes. They are the basic building blocks of how we understand the world. Yeah, when I was going through your stuff on instinct, it took me back to a chat that I had quite recently with uh, Dr. Ian McGilchrist, who has just written a, a, a fabulous um, series called The Matter of Things, 1,600 pages long. And uh, he uh, delved into um, instinct a little bit. And he said that he had looked at race car drivers and he said that they were going so fast in the in these cars that it would be impossible for these people to make a conscious decision on what to do when something comes up. He said, but most of the time they almost perfectly go. 
So I think, uh, you know, for a lot of people that would be listening to that, there's a lot of narratives out there now about, you know, questioning your instincts, you know, distrusting your instincts. Where do you kind of stand on, I guess, the power of instinct and perhaps the, the potential of it to lead us to good or, or, or evil, if you will? Yeah. So instinct, and we might contrast that conscious thought, we might call rational thought. Mm. Um, instinct, thought processes, and rational thought processes each have their own advantages and disadvantages. One of the advantages of instinct is it is fast. It's much, much faster than rational thought. And that's why race car drivers have to depend on it. You're driving 200 miles an hour. Uh, I, I don't know, you, you're covering a quarter mile in a second or two, and you don't have time to think about what to do. Um, instinct, on the other hand, learns differently than rationality. Uh, as people listen to this podcast, they're learning all kinds of new things, bang, instantly. Instinct, though, learns very, very slowly. And it doesn't learn by um, taking in new facts. It learns by practice, by mm. experience. So if you want to be a race car driver, you can't read a book. You have to spend hundreds, actually thousands of hours on the track training your instinct. And that's true for any athlete. You want to learn how to catch a baseball? You got to do it for thousands of hours. Um, and it's the same thing with any sport, anything at all that you need to be able to do without rational thought processes. So perhaps it could be fair to say that if you are someone that has put a lot of time into something, a lot of training, if you're, a, you know, you put a lot of time into developing relationships or uh, you know, building businesses and, you know, you feel like you've built up a certain level of competence and then your instinct tells you one thing, then perhaps that, that could be a, a good indicator that perhaps you should trust this. But if you're a beginner in something and your instinct is telling you one thing, maybe questioning it. Is that, is that kind of what I'm hearing? Yeah, that's right. You, you know, um, instinct thinks in a different way than rational thought. Uh, one of the things I emphasize in the book is that the things that we call magic, um, the metaphorical ways we understand uh, mysticism, the supernatural, that's actually unconscious thought processes. And that's why even though we know none of this stuff is factually true, and yet we find it so compelling. We, we love stories about magic and the supernatural. So there's a lot of advantages, which I think people overlook to thinking in that way. But at the same time, there, there are disadvantages and magical, unconscious, instinctual thinking does make mistakes sometimes. So if we can, it's good to check what instinct tells us. And, and, and instinct will communicate to us in the form of gut feelings, intuition and inspiration. That's where we get it. It's good to check it against rational thought processes if we can, but we can't always do it. And let me give you an example. Please. Um, uh, high school senior uh, plans to go to college. And so she starts, she starts viewing different colleges and the amount of information she's getting is absolutely overwhelming her. Um, she, she's, she's looking at the dorms, the library, the, 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 the dining hall, the courses that are offered, the reputation, the professors, that rationality has very narrow bandwidth and it absolutely overwhelms it. Unconscious instinct has much broader bandwidth. And so ultimately what she's going to do 
she's going to make a decision about what college to go to based on what her gut tells her. She can't check that with rational thought. She can make sure her gut's not telling her to go to some horrible school that has some terrible flaw. But if she compares like her top three or four, she's got to go with her gut because her conscious mind is overwhelmed. So sometimes we think rationally, sometimes we think with instinct, but the best is when we combine the two. And I think we see that. If I can give one more example please, please. with musicians. When you first learn to play an instrument, you're using 100% your rational mind, the keyboard. Okay, press this key, press this key, press this key. And it's so slow and laborious and exhausting. Once you practice and practice and practice, hundreds, thousands of hours, it shifts into your unconscious, instinctual mind, and it becomes effortless, and you no longer need to think about it. But there's one more level. There's one more level that only the finest musicians reach, and that's when they combine the two. They're playing the notes using their unconscious instinct, but at the same time, their rational mind is cognitively interpreting the music, figuring out what the composer intended and adding their own style to it. So now they're using both their instinct and their cognitive mind. And we can even see this on brain scans. With beginners, the frontal lobe lights up. With intermediate people, deeper structures light up. And with the expert musicians, the entire brain lights up and they're using it all. Wow. I, I guess that, and perhaps, you know, you know this far far better than I would, but I, I would imagine that something like dialectical behavioral therapy, DBT, is perhaps founded on this idea of taking the emotional mind and the rational mind and combining the two, which I guess is kind of what you're talking about, by you combining the uh, top-down and bottom-up thinking. Yes, that's right. And I believe it's called wise mind. Wise mind, yes. Yeah. Yeah. DBT uh, was originally developed for people with borderline personality disorder, and it works shockingly well. We used to think that there weren't any good treatments for borderline personality disorder. Now, if you meet somebody who's gone through DBT, you can't tell that they have that illness. And, and so it's absolutely wonderful. We found it actually works well for an even broader um, range of people. And one problem it, it addresses is people who have trouble controlling their impulses. Mm. They, they act impulsively without thinking. And so it helps them recognize that their instincts are not what they should be. And we don't know why. It, it could be because of genetics. It could be because of adverse environmental circumstances growing up. But it teaches them to check with their rational mind the instinctual reactions that they're having without in any way devaluing that instinct. Not saying, oh, rational is good, instinct is bad. Mm -hmm. But, and one of the things I talk a lot about in the book is that instinct in its wild state is, is kind of like a wild animal. Instinct is the animal part of humans. You know, one of the funny things about human beings is that we are this weird, weird, combination of the spiritual and the animal and that can be a little bit uncomfortable and if we're just rational thinking machines that's no good because we don't have instinct if we're just instinctual that's no good because then we kind of operate on the level of our animal nature 
we want to try to bring both of them together. And as you point out, that is one of the goals of DBT. Ah, I, I love that. I love that. So perhaps um, I'd love to kind of delve into perhaps exploring the, the, this unconscious mind a bit more. One of my favorite ever Carl Jung quotes was he said, until we make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. So in the book, you kind of talk about this idea of perhaps shining a light on things that are buried below. So what are the benefits of doing that and how do we go about doing it? Right. So let's talk about some of the ways the unconscious plays an enormous role in day-to-day life that most people may not fully appreciate. And let's start with desire, all right? Now, we spend our day, we spend our life working for the things that we want. Um, It could be a career, it could be love, it could be material possessions, it could be spiritual growth, whatever. Um, But that's what we spend all our time and all our energy on, pursuing what we want. Now, who determines what you want? Not you. You have no (laughs) control over that. And and in fact, sometimes we know that the things that we want are bad for us. Sometimes we fall in love with people who are just awful for us and destroy our lives. Um, I may want to be a teacher and I may have a passion for that. And and I may realize that teachers don't get paid very much, unfortunately. So I may say, well, lawyers get paid a lot. Let me change my passion from teaching to the law. It's not possible because you're not in control of what you want. That's one way the unconscious directs your life. Another way is with values. We all have values, what we think is important, and we will make sacrifices for our values. And once again, we don't choose those. Those are chosen by our unconscious mind. So our unconscious mind will make us act in ways that are actually contrary to our own best interest because it's got its own agenda. So what do we do about that? Mm. Well, I think the first step is to get better at separating the two, recognizing what are we choosing consciously? What are we in control of? And what are we not? Our desires, our values, our emotions, our gut feelings, our intuitions. The first step is to start recognizing these things. And there's a tactical term for it in psychology It's called an observing ego. It's taking a step back and watching your mind. So for example, let's say you get angry. We might say, I'm angry. And we might identify with that feeling. That's not a great idea because by identifying it, we lose control. We get sucked into this emotion and we start acting not at our human level, but at our animal level. So what we want to do is not say, I am angry, but I'm feeling anger. And then just look at that. Don't push it away. We want to feel it to the fullest, but we don't identify with it. And that's the observing ego. That enables us to get to know this this hidden dark partner better and take the first steps in making it a friend and an ally. Yeah, man, I love that. So we've talked a little bit now about the kind of unconscious i'd love it if you could bridge us to uh kind of how you take the unconscious to magic because this was where i really loved going through the book right right all right so 
I hope I've done a good job explaining just how powerful this is in our life. And let me mention just a couple other things that I Please. think relate to it. It's our unconscious that makes us fall in love. And for most people, falling in love is going to be the most intense experience of their life. And, and we all know that sometimes when people are in love, they act in insane ways. <laughs> right. It's our unconscious that gives us inspiration. Um, new ideas that are far better than anything the, the conscious mind could kind of come up with. Inspirations can lead to new careers. It can lead to awe-inspiring works of art. It can change the world. So the unconscious can throw us into a passion. It can destroy our life by making us act impulsively. It can change the world. It, it can make us fall in love. And so when you think about it this way, it's not surprising that in the past, people attributed these things to supernatural creatures. Falling in love was attributed to the goddess of love. Um, in, in Roman times, that was Venus. In um, Greek times, that was Aphrodite. But, but all ancient cultures have their own goddess of love, who is incredibly important. Even today, with inspiration, artists will talk about their muse, and they think that they're talking metaphorically, but not completely, because artists recognize that they don't say, I came up with that idea. The I, the conscious mind that speaks to their mouth, is smart enough not to take credit for it, and they do um, attribute it to a supernatural creature. And so it's kind of like when unconscious contents erupt into consciousness, whether it's an emotion, a mystical experience, inspiration, things that change our life. It feels like possession. And so we have all of these ancient stories about magic, fairy tales, alchemy, numerology, mythology, folklore. These are stories about the, about the unconscious mind. And in modern times, we, we've kind of you know what we've done with them? We've put them in the nursery room. We've right. said, these are stories for children. And that's a huge mistake. Because if we want to understand, get to know and ally with our unconscious mind, in my opinion, maybe one of the most important things we do over the course of our lifetime, we need to understand it. And these stories about magic are a roadmap towards that understanding. Yeah, and it's interesting for me because in the book, you you mentioned that elite athletes are some of the most superstitious uh, people yes. around. So I, I would love to know why, what are the benefits, I guess, of opening ourselves up to this uh, thinking about, as you said, myth, the supernatural, uh, you know, whatever your kind of flavor of that is. What, what, are, the, what are the benefits of that? Right, right. So, so... As you point out, athletes are more superstitious than most people. Professional athletes are more superstitious than amateurs. And elite athletes are the most superstitious of all. So a couple examples I gave in the book is Michael Jordan, mm -hmm. in every professional basketball game, he wore his college um, North Carolina Tar Heels uh, shorts underneath his other shorts. And um, Wade Boggs used to eat chicken before every single game. And run sprints at exactly 7.17 p.m. 
Why? Well, athletes improve their skills and their performance through practice, and they practice every day training their unconscious instinct. Nevertheless, they don't know on any given day if they're going to have a great game, an inspired performance, as we say, in which they are just hot beyond belief, or they're going to be an absolute mess uh, and drop every pass, just make an absolute disaster, and nobody knows why. The reason is that on their good days, their unconscious is cooperating, and on their bad days, it's not. And one of the things we know is that performing superstitious rituals is one way of getting your unconscious to cooperate with you more. Um, students do it before a test. Uh, students will wear a lucky shirt. They'll knock on wood. Um, they'll listen to uh, music that they love before the test. Um, a lot of people will do it on a first date. Um, they, they will carry something that, that, that is superstitiously lucky. When the stakes are high and we feel like we have less conscious control, that's when we're most likely to turn to superstition. And the reason is we're trying to get our unconscious mind to cooperate, either to give us great skills as a sports person or make us feel at ease and be a brilliant conversationalist on a first date. Uh, we know there are things that we can't control, but they're crucial for our success. There's an anecdote about this that I simply must share with you. Uh, when I was in university the, the first time around, one of my friends told me that uh, there was a girl that he, he really liked, and he would specifically wait until 11.11 to send you a text. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that that kind of emphasizes your point that within us there is some sort of perhaps need, some uh, some hole within us that this kind of spiritual element can fill i mean I, I know people that have been through breakups that have that are very scientifically minded that turn to horoscopes um well yeah I, i'm kind of just wondering if you could kind of go a bit deeper on what why is this why is this so deeply rooted within us kind of why have we evolved that way that's a great question and i i think that the only way we can answer that is to say that evolution is based on natural selection. You, the brain is constantly going through different mutations. Some mutations make improve our survival odds. Some mutations do the opposite. And the ones that improve our survival odds are maintained uh, because people who have that mutation are more likely to survive and reproduce. And so if you look at these archetypes that human beings have developed, these instincts, it's really no different from the instincts of weaver birds and bees. They developed because they improved our chances of survival and reproduction. One of, one of the things the unconscious mind tends to do is to create this feeling that we are all united. And so, you know, human beings can act in very, very selfish ways. And in some ways that makes sense from an evolutionary perspective. If I try to collect resources like food and shelter and tools and reproductive partners for myself, I'm more likely to be evolutionarily successful. But there is a countervailing value. And that is that creatures that cooperate 
are going to fight, build, and hunt and gather food more effective than individuals. And so the unconscious mind tends to work against this selfishness, and it tends to promote this unity and cooperation. And so if you look at a lot of these ancient magical and supernatural traditions, they're traditions that tend to bring tribes, bring peoples together as a single unit. And that's probably a lot of the reason why they persisted. Uh, they developed in our brain and persisted for millennia. I I, I love that. And I you kind of mentioned, uh, you know, magic. Uh, and I'd love to kind of talk to you about uh, magic moments. And I guess also uh, hope in some ways, because I was just speaking to um, uh, Mark Goldston, who's a psychiatrist, and, and he, he said to me that depression is sadness without hope. And uh, I, I remember thinking to myself, you know, the one thing that I guess kind of when I was going through your work that it does, that this type of way of thinking, it does instill a little bit of hope. And I remember you, you say in the book, you say, a magic moment wakes us up from our familiar routines. It makes us realize that the world has deeper, more mystical dimension than we're accustomed to seeing, uh, which I kind of, um, I, you know, I, I really, I really love that quote. Uh, so I'm just trying to like kind of piece all this together. And it's kind of got me thinking, you know, do you think that the person that is that kind of, as we talked about earlier, the data scientist, the P is, you know, is it less than five? Is it more, more than 0.5? Do you think that they are kind of doing themselves a disservice if they remain limited in opening themselves up to this kind of way of thinking? Because you make a really compelling case in the book. And um, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Yes, yes. So I think we should first talk about what a magic moment is. I, I think that most people have a, a general idea um, what it is. Um, it can happen when you're with another person and, and all of a sudden there's this sense of intimacy. Even when we're with other people, we don't always feel a sense of connection. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes we do. And, and when we're with friends that we love or with family, when we get that connection, it, it feels really, really good. Sometimes the connection goes even deeper and we almost feel like there is nothing separating us. We call that a magic moment. Magic moments can also happen when we're all by ourselves and we connect with nature. Uh, if you imagine walking on the beach at dawn and all of a sudden things are different. Um, the smell in the air, the sound of the surf, you, you just feel all of a sudden so alive as if you are connecting with a deeper reality. In my opinion, these are the high points of life. Uh, there is nothing better. And, 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 and that's when our unconscious is erupting into our conscious minds. And for people who are spiritual, it feels like a connection with the divine. You know, when you're in that forest, when you're on that mountain, when you're on the beach, and all of a sudden you get an eruption of unconscious contents, and reality is completely different, it feels like you are touching something divine. Mm -hmm. You're seeing what is sacred about life. And, 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 and there's nothing better than that. And, and, you know, we spend so much time working for material possessions, even though we know damn well material possessions do not make us happy, 
for more than a couple days, maybe a couple weeks after we get them, it, it's these magic moments. It's when we're able to connect with the unconscious. That's what's truly worth working for in life, in my opinion. Um, so you asked about hope. Uh, and and I, I think it's probably related. Um, life is really, really hard. Mm. And I think that sometimes we underappreciate how hard life is. Um, and I, I think that we, we sometimes tell ourselves, all right, it's hard now, but, but if only X, Y, Z, it will get better. Um, and one of the things psychiatrists are trained to do is watch out for those if onlys, um, because sometimes unhappy people will sort of put all their eggs in one basket and say, if only I can get into a relationship, if only I can get a new job, if only I can move across the country. Um, but, but, but those things don't make them happy. Uh, the only thing that makes people happy really is inner growth. And hope keeps us going during these very difficult, dark times. And, and you know, it, it, it's very mythological. Um, there, there's a myth about the, um, the god Prometheus who um, brings hope to mankind. And as a result, he's punished by Zeus. Uh, he, he, he's tied to a rock and has his liver ripped out every day eternally. That's how angry Zeus was because giving hope to humanity made them as if they were gods and threatened the Olympians because hope made humanity so powerful. Wow. Man, I love that. And I'm going to put a link down um, in the description for everybody that wants to check out your new book. Uh, it goes live. This episode goes live this week. So by the time the people tune in this episode, they can just pick it straight up. I would love to ask you, if you wouldn't mind, some questions about your other book, The Molecule More because I, I absolutely love this. Um, at the start of the book, you kind of talked about um, the up versus down metaphor for dopamine. I wonder if you could share this with us. Yeah. So one of the points of writing The Molecule of More was to help people get a deeper understanding of dopamine. Mm. I think that most people who know about dopamine think about it as the pleasure molecule. It's the molecule that gets you high, that gives you reward. Um, that gives you motivation, makes you want to do things that give you happiness and reward. But that's only a small part of what it does. Really, what dopamine does is it orchestrates our thought processes when we think about things that we want, but we do not have. And so in some ways, the brain is divided into the space that's around us called the peripersonal space. And that's stuff that we have, you know? I got this mug. Um, this is in my peripersonal space. It's mine. I don't have to work for it. I can just enjoy it. Everything else, everything that's out of out arm's reach is in the extrapersonal space. That space that I, that stuff that I don't have, um, if I want it, I'm going to interact with it, not now, but in the future, because I got to go get it. Um, and it's going to take work and motivation. Everything that's in the extrapersonal space, our thinking about it is coordinated by dopamine. So when you look down, you look in the peripersonal space, and, and we call the brain chemicals, the neurotransmitters that orchestrate that, the here and now brain chemicals. When you look up into the extrapersonal space, that's dopamine. Mm. 
And so dopamine coordinates your mental work with stuff that you don't have, but you want or need. Right. And that also implies that when you look up and you see a degree or a partner, that once you bring it down into your peripersonal space, that, that dopamine, it doesn't go away. There are still, still things right above you. Well, and I guess that kind of brings me to a great point about dopamine, and that is, is that when you, if you think that bringing something down from the above will make you happy, then that, that may be a, a big flaw in, in thinking, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, you know, if, um, you know, if you said, oh, geez, if I could only make a six-figure salary, that would be it. I would do, get the six-figure fast. Nope, no way. Um, you know, some people say, if only I can make a million dollars. Oh, my God, I would be happy. Nope, now you need $10 million. If only I can get a promotion to this very, very prestigious title. Nope, now you need the next promotion. And so it's important to know that because otherwise you're running on a hamster wheel thinking that you are pursuing happiness when you are not uh, because dopamine is always going to be just out of sight. Um, yeah. And, and perhaps the most startling uh, uh, depiction of this, well, two of them come to my mind, uh, but the first one that, you, you know, you talk about was Buzz Aldrin. Uh, I kind of wonder if you could go into this example because this is pretty, th this is on another level, I think. Oh, yeah. Uh, Buzz Aldrin uh, was the second man to walk on the moon and, and he wrote an autobiography about that and the subsequent struggles that he experienced. Um, what could be more amazing than walking on the moon? And, and so in a... Um, in an interview, when he got back to Earth, he was asked, what did it feel like to walk on the moon? And he said, I don't know. We weren't feeling. We weren't paying attention to that. And um, they said something like, it must be amazing for you to think that you are a human being who walked on the moon. And he goes, you know what? That's just something I did. Now I need to look forward to the next thing. <laughs> And so he's ruled by dopamine. It's always next, 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 next. But you can't top walking on the moon. And it was rough for him after that. Um, he mentioned his autobiography that I, I think he married and divorced three different women. He developed alcoholism. His life was an absolute shambles. He ended up on an inpatient psychiatric unit which was the best thing that could happen to him because he did get treatment, he did get better, and he did go on to do more amazing things. But um, even walking on the moon is not enough for somebody who's got that much dopamine. Yeah, and it's it's so interesting because I interviewed uh, Dr. Anna Lemke from Stanford who wrote Dopamine Nation. And I remember uh, she told me that dopamine's interesting because when it spikes, um, and obviously, it, you know, any species in nature has to come back to homeostasis but it, it's not that it actually goes back to baseline it has to go below baseline and when it goes below baseline that's when things like craving like withdrawal start um so i would kind of love to to ask you um some kind of questions about that because i feel like dopamine is is so commonly talked about it's you know very blasé and kind of this uh, day and age but I'd be interested to kind of ask you, dopamine, as you mentioned, is this kind of molecule of more. 
as as you know, you, you very eloquently titled your book. What role does it play in, for instance, things like addictions? What what role would dopamine play there? Right. So dopamine is about increasing our evolutionary odds, the odds of surviving and reproducing. Um, keeping the stuff you have doesn't increase it. Uh, it just keeps it the same. If you want to increase your odds, you always need more, 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 the next thing. And um, that can be frustrating because dopamine feels so very, very good. Um, so, um, you know, if I get a new cell phone, I get a little dopamine and then immediately it goes away. Now, here's the thing. If I use a drug of abuse like alcohol, marijuana, cocaine, that cheats. That's kind of a shortcut. That's a chemical blast right to the dopamine center. And um, it, it, it's kind of reliable. Um, in, in the beginning, at least, it always gives you that blast uh, in a way that picking up my old cell phone isn't going to do. It tricks your brain. Um, because dopamine is about evolutionary survival, your brain starts to think that using this drug is the single most important thing in your life. And that's why you get addicted. But here's the problem. When you give it this artificial hyperstimulation, something called homeostatic mechanisms kick in. The body is designed to operate in a pretty narrow physiological environment. So if it's hot, you sweat. If it's cold, you shiver. Uh, so the body's always trying to reach this midpoint. If you're hyperstimulating your dopamine circuits with this artificial chemical blast, what happens is you produce fewer dopamine receptors and you get less and less of a buzz. So what happens is over time, you need more and more of the drug to get high. And then you need more and more of the drug just to feel normal. And then you go below the baseline dopamine and you feel horrible. You feel resentful, you feel deprived, and you feel full of craving. And um, that's the trap that drugs draw you into. Right. And, you know, for instance, it can also be things like, uh, you know, pornography. It can be, you know, social media, self news, all kinds of, of different things. Um, but I would love to kind of ask you, you know, because I'd be interested in this. You're a psychiatrist. You, you wrote this unbelievable book on dopamine. What are your thoughts on dopamine detoxing? Uh, because this is something I've been reading about where some people, you know, they've taken this to extremes where they won't even look people in the eyes and, and things like this. And so I'd be interested to know your thoughts on dopamine detoxing and whether you've actually prescribed something similar to perhaps a patient. You know, they're on the right track, but they got it wrong. Okay. <laughs> So there's two problems with dopamine detox or dopamine fasting, as it's sometimes mm -hmm. called. The first is that they not only deprive themselves of dopamine pleasures, they also deprive themselves of here and now pleasures. And that's a mistake. What they should be doing is maximizing the here and now pleasures. Um, you know, dopamine pleasures are excitement, anticipation, feeling that your life is about to get better. But that's not the only kind of pleasure we can experience. The other pleasure is not about the future, but about the present. Those are feelings of satisfaction, fulfillment, contentment. Very, very different. Uh, some people 
don't like that. It, it feels a little bit touchy feely. They like the excitement of dopamine, not the quiet, ah, it's enough of here and now. But if you focus on here and now pleasures, savoring the flavors of a meal without thinking about what's next, enjoying being with somebody you care about without thinking about where are we going to go after this, that can actually help resensitize your dopamine system. So um, they should be maximizing the social pleasures of looking people in the eye, enjoying conversations. They, they cut themselves off from delicious food. Um, sugary food, fatty food, salty food is dopaminergic. But how about enjoying a piece of fruit or a piece of whole grain bread? Um, that's not dopaminergic. That's here and now. So the first mistake they make is throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Yes, stay away from those dopamine pleasures, but maximize the here and now. So, so they need to know the difference. Uh, the yeah. second mistake they make is that the brain adapts very, very slowly. And so a heroic effort of cutting yourself off from everything for one or two days, that's not gonna change the brain. It's a marathon, not a sprint. And so I think it makes sense to make efforts to keep your dopamine system sensitized, but you don't do it with heroic efforts for one day. What you try to do is seek moderation. Um, try to cut out these, these dopaminergic blasts from pornography, drugs, social media, highly processed foods, whatever. Not all at once. Don't be heroic. A little bit at a time. Try to bring that down. The more you do that, the more sensitive your dopamine system will be, and the more you'll be able to enjoy the lasting joys of life. One thing that I find very interesting about you is is that you know you've obviously achieved a tremendous amount of success in your life. I mean, I you know you're a you're a, a revered psychiatrist. You've you've now published two unbelievable books. But I, I couldn't find you on social media. Uh, and I'd love to, uh, apart from your YouTube channel, which I will link below, but I would love to kind of ask you, how do you uh, personally perhaps try to limit dopamine's influence over you? Yeah. Well, yeah. So so um, I think I've got a Facebook page somewhere, but I I, I, I don't touch it. I, I, I Yeah. I don't have a Twitter account. I don't have anything. All I got is a YouTube and a LinkedIn. And... Um, they're not good for you. Um, you know, they can be used sensibly. If you just use them as a way to connect with real loved ones, fantastic. But what happens is people get seduced by these superficial dopamine pleasures of getting likes. They present themselves in totally unrealistic ways, pictures of all the highlights of their life while suppressing the challenges and hardships um, and, and that's fine for them. But then when you look at other people who are doing the same thing, it makes you depressed because mm -hmm. you think everybody's life is perfect, but your own. From my point of view, though, I just find it boring and a waste of time. I'd rather read a good book than spend an hour on social media doing God knows what. So, um, you know, in, in my life, I, I avoid social media, but, but that's not a sacrifice. I just hate it. Um, I, 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 I do meditate for 15 minutes a day, which some people might say is lame, but it, it has, I, I love it. 
I love it. I feel like it has a great influence over my life. Um, and I just try to be mindful. I, I'm not going to say I'm any hero depriving myself of dopamine. I eat junk food, but I try to minimize it. Um, and, and so my philosophy is all things in moderation. Um, and, and that works pretty well for me. But I, I, like everyone else, I've got a lot of growth to do. And so I just do try to concentrate on what can I do to make myself a slightly better person? I love that, man. And I'd love to kind of ask you, because one of the things that I got from from your work, from from Anna's work, from from uh, from Andrew Huberman's work, is that it seems to me that with dopamine, it's not necessarily that that high dopaminergic states can be a problem. It's perhaps how they're attained. So, for instance, if I get a uh, if I have a goal for a relationship and I work really hard to to make my relationship better, and it comes around, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But for instance, pornography, where there's no prior effort to attain it, if I want to, you know, feel a state of ecstasy and I just take a tablet, as opposed to trying to, you know, concoct, a, a, you know, uh, trying to build a great life that seems to be a problem you know steroids in, in the same way you know they kind of they give you the, the outcome without although some people might dispute this but without the necessary effort so is that it does that seem to be the problem that it's not necessarily the reward it's the prior effort that it takes to acquire it that may be the issue yeah yeah i don't i don't want to give people the um the misunderstanding that dopamine is bad dopamine is wonderful uh dopamine transforms us in many ways it changes the world but dopamine is a reward it's a reward for hard work the purpose of dopamine is to motivate us to do amazing things uh, we get into trouble when as you say we don't work for our dopamine hits and also instead of making dopamine hits special occasions special treats we try to constantly get these little dopamine hits so yeah if, if you fall in love with a woman and you know you work really really hard and you get her in bed and you have great sex and boom you get big dopamine fantastic but if you go on the internet every day and look at pornography that's not good that's not good um apart from whatever moral short uh concerns you may have it's not good for your brain it's going to desensitize your dopamine system and make it so you no longer get rewards for doing things that are incredibly hard. So it makes you want to go after the easy things, taking the tablet, looking at pornography, um, using social media instead of going out and making real friends. It shifts you from the uh, from the hard to the easy. That can have a very negative effect on your life. Yeah, man, absolutely. And I remember reading um, uh, accounts of uh, pornography users in recovery and they were saying things like for the first time in years they'd hear a song and suddenly get emotional about it so some people would say that they could think things would appear more vibrant colors would appear more vibrant so man i i, I love this um i've just got a, a quick fire question for you just before i man, ask you to sign off tell these guys where they can connect with you it's the question we finish all of our podcasts with well uh, the last question that i ask at all the end of these shows is what makes a life worth living? The question of what makes life worth living, in my opinion, it's growth. 
it's easy to stand still. It's easy to say, all right, I, I'm relatively happy. I am just going to try to maintain my stability. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Um, I think that human beings can't be happy staying in one place. We have to constantly be growing, constantly be making sacrifices for better things. And so I would say that's the most important thing. We want to find ways to every day, every month, every year, try to be slightly better people. I love that, man. Uh, Dr. Lieberman, are there any parting messages that you'd like to share with our guests? Any links that you'd like us to link below in the description for our audience? Tell these guys where you'd like them to go. I, I would just ask them to uh, check out my website, check out my YouTube channel. And um, if they're interested in the unconscious mind and they do pick up my book, a word of warning. Um, you got to get some kind of challenging science down before you can get to the wonderful stuff about magic and the supernatural. Don't give up. The first few chapters are a little bit hard. There's wonderful, fascinating science in there. Plow through. It'll be worth it. I love that. Uh, Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. This has been a, a, a true pleasure. I've been looking forward to this one for a long time. So, man, thank you for taking the time. Thanks so much for having me.